Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Coming up on this episode of White Wine Question Time. It's like in the 90s, there weren't supposed to be any single women in their 30s. If you were a single woman in your 30s, people were were really convinced that there was something wrong with you. (laughs) And the reality is, I know so many women who are my age who meet somebody and they fall in love and they're happier than they've ever been before. And, you know, like the new thing is the 70-something wedding. Is it? Um, (laughs) Is it really? For example, like you broke up with Ron, who was your Mr. Big, when when you pretty much actually he broke up with me. Oh, did he? Hello, and welcome to White Wine Question Time, the podcast that asks its guests three thought-provoking questions over three glasses of wine. And my guest today is a woman who, thirty years ago, provided the voice to a cultural phenomenon and redefined how a generation of women saw themselves, their friendships, their success, and ultimately their sexuality. In a word, she rewrote 30-something women in the 90s and fun-washed being single to the point of making it aspirational. Raised in rural Connecticut alongside two younger sisters, she was born to a rocket scientist dad, true story, and a travel agent mum and dropped out of university at 19 to move to New York with just $20 in her pocket and ambitions of becoming an actor. Soon after the move, though, her sights quickly turned to journalism and New York in the 90s became her storyboard. 
Sofa surfing and struggling to get by, she started to claw a living as a writer, working for some of New York's best titles, and in 1994 managed to land a weekly column with the New York Observer called Sex and the City, which starred, well, her, but as a fictitious Carrie Bradshaw. It was a huge success and led to the publication of the diaries as a book two years later, sowing the seeds of what would go on to become the multi-award winning world-beating Sex in the City TV series. After two seasons of working in the writer's room on the show, she was made an offer she couldn't refuse. A million dollar book contract to write her own novels, which also wrote her out of being able to carry on working on the show. And it was there that she stopped writing Carrie and started writing 10 best-selling novels. In the intervening years, she's been married and divorced, moved back to her home state and became celibate for five years before making a grand return to the city. In 2019, she released her memoir, Is There Still Sex in the City? and is now about to bring her one-woman show, True Tales of Sex, Success and Sex in the City to the UK, touring the length and breadth of the nation in February. So let's dial her in, all the way from New York, Candace Bushnell. How are you? I am excellent after that incredible intro. Well, it's all true. You did. You, that's all the stuff you've done. And, um, and it, is, it is the most remarkable CV. And, and I hope that you kind of grasp that hearing it back. Because um, I'm, you know, I'm sure that not every day you feel like one of life's great achievers. Uh, no, I, I usually don't. <laughs> I, I worry a lot about, you know, being you know, being successful and the next thing and achieving, it it makes me happy. You know, it makes me happy when things work out and you get that check and you sign that contract. Well, yeah. And you learn along the way, right? Because I know that the the contracts you sign now will differ very greatly from the ones that you signed originally. I mean, like your, your deal for Sex in the City, the TV series was in no way reflective of the money pot it went on to grow. I think you got $100,000 for that. I'm sure your contracts look a little different these days. Um, well, one hopes. Although, you know, in TV, I mean, the thing about TV is, or, or you know, show business in general. I mean, people never, they never come up to you and say, hey, we're going to give you a really great contract. I mean, <laughs> I, I know one person that happened to and you know she got a great contract because the person who was giving her the contract used to be her assistant and he she trained him and he'd <laughs> gone on to huge heights and he felt like i owe her so i'm gonna give her a fantastic contract and this friend of mine she has the best retirement of anybody i've ever seen wow She's got bags of money. She's got a really hot boyfriend. And she's having a great time. Wow. So, But you know what? She, she actually had to put the work in and be a good person in order to enable that to happen. It didn't just land in her lap, right? She, yes. she manifested it, really. Yes. No, she, 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 excuse the language, but she worked her ass off. I mean, she really did and she she struggled and she worked so hard so it you know it does show that hard work does pay off i read that you're talking about making a new reality dating show um for the 50 plus 
and yes and I love the idea of that as a as a woman who sits here before you at 50 and single um and I wondered uh what what it is that you think you can bring to the screen that we haven't seen already having reinvented the 30 something woman what are you about to do for the 50 something I I think there's so much to be brought to the screen and you know it's a little premature to talk about it because we're actually I'm working with Boona Murray which is one of the I don't know how many Emmys they've they've won for reality shows but they are one of the biggest reality TV producers in the world and you know they're incredible um but you know we're still pitching it to different streamers and networks etc as as one does but uh, you know the 50 something woman is just an absolutely overlooked audience and you know it's changing i mean it's changing since i wrote is there still sex in the city and it came out in 2019 and when i wrote that book i was I want to say I was in my fifties. Now I'm in my sixties. I'm like, wait, how did that happen? That was only a couple of years ago. What? Someone's stolen your years. Someone, yes. Someone, I like. You get you get to this stage and it feels like that, doesn't it? It's like, hang on a minute, hold on a minute. I was 45 a minute ago. Exactly. Um, But it's you know it's 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 being in your fifties is so different now than it was. 30 years ago, 50 years ago, it's a completely different uh, ball of wax. I mean, it's really, it's really a new stage in people's lives in the same way that being in your 30s and single was like a new stage in women's lives back in the 90s. Like in the 90s, there weren't supposed to be any single women in their 30s. If you were a single woman in your 30s, people were, were, really convinced that there was something wrong with you. Yeah. You had to baggage. Um, you know, all there were all kinds of assumptions made about these women. And that was, you know, I was a single woman in my 30s. And so were all of my girlfriends. And, you know, when Sex and the City first came out, people were pretty outraged about it, pretty shocked. And... The 50-something audience of women, it's it's that same woman, literally that same woman, 25, 30 years later, who finds herself single again. You know, many women, they did everything right. Uh, you know, they got married, they had kids, they raised the kids, they have a career. You know, maybe it's not a full-on career because they've got to take care of the kids as well. And... And then they find themselves single again. You know, their husband cheated. Yeah, I mean, the other thing is you get into your 50s and stuff happens. Parents die. There's menopause. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. You know, some people lose a spouse. So things happen and there's a real shakeup. And, and so that was really something to write about. And, you know, I was watching our version of Love Island last night, which I know is very different than the English version. Mm-hmm. You guys have 
It's Love Island. We have Love Island. Yeah, we have Love Island. It's Love Island. It seems to be on constantly. It's very young people yes. in very few clothes, and they all yes. get text messages. Pretty much, as one of them joked, joke, they're only in bathing suits mm-hmm. or prom dresses. <laughs> you know, the guys are laughing. Oh, we made a joke. <laughs> the conversations are always the same. You can swap out, you know, any number of those young people and no, no, no offense to them, but their conversations are the same. They're not that interesting. Not that much has happened to them. There just isn't the amount of depth and experience that there is with a woman who's in her 50s. So, I mean, number one, I will tell you with this reality show, we will be hearing conversations that we have never heard before on a reality show because the women have so much more experience. And, you know, they're interesting. Things have happened to them. And... They have more to say. And they're also, you know, they're not looking for a man to rescue them. No. You know, and they're also generally not looking for the father of their children because they've already had kids. So actually what they're looking for is somebody that they can go for dinner with, they can have sex with, they can have a laugh with. It's a different ask to what you date in your 30s and what you look for in your 30s and even in your 40s. Yes. I mean, it's it's very different. And, you know, I always call, you know, up until you're about in your 50s, those are your reproductive years. You know, you're going to, you know, you're going to start some kind of family or you're going to start some kind of career or something. And then, you know, after 50, it's, it's a different time in your life. You know, you're not going to reproduce. Now, if you're a man, maybe you are. I'm like, okay, guys, that you have that child with the woman who's 40, you're 68 going on 70. Okay, you think that's a good idea? Okay, you're you're rich, you're going to do whatever you want, but I have some questions about that I don't know that it's such a great idea I'd love to dive into this a little more with you because I think if anybody is qualified to reroute and rewrite the narrative of what a woman in her 50s and 60s looks like now it's you so can we sure when you signed off from sex in the city um you were in your, your, your 40s, right? So that was the story of your mid-30s to sort of 40s. And you revolutionised how women were seen, celebrated. Like, that you say, they were kind of pariahs. If you were single in your 30s, they, they were women that you were nervous about inviting over to a party in case, oh, you know, they might want to go, they might want to flirt with my husband. You, you, re, you got rid of all of those old tropes and you put something on the page that celebrated the chutzpah of these women, the fact that they were funny and smart and complicated and fearless. And they didn't they didn't have to be married to be defined. They didn't have to have children to be defined. So thank you for that, because I was one of those women and I saw myself every week in what you wrote and subsequently what came onto the screen. But now I'd love to see what I could look like 
in these years and I look to you. What do I look like as a 50-year-old woman who's looking at her 60s and how does it differ to maybe my my mum's generation or your mother's generation, do you think? Well, I mean, first of all, we have a lot more tools at our disposal. I mean, I think first of all, women of your generation, I mean, to me, if you said you were 35, I'd believe it. Thanks, Candice. Right back at you. And listen, if I can sit there looking half of you at 65, my God, I'll be doing roly-polies, God willing, that I've still got that flexibility. Uh, but, you know, it, it used to be like with our mother's generation, when you turned 50, 55, 60, you know, things were a little bit over. Like, you know, you would let your hair go gray. Not that there's anything wrong with having, you know, letting your hair go gray. That's fantastic. If you have the kind of gray hair that works for you, uh, not everybody does. Um, but there's just a, a youthfulness and an energy to women these days that, you know, it didn't exist before. I mean, people live longer, they live much more vibrant lives and, it's, it's like there's still so much ahead. You know, for a lot of women, being postmenopausal, you know, because menopause, everyone says, oh, menopause, man. Like, you know, menopause is how you're going to define yourself, you know, after whenever you go through menopause for the rest of your life. But actually, menopause only lasts for one year, technically. That's one day. It's, from- it's your last period. That's it. And then, yes, you have to have not bled for one year. But you're quite right. It's a snapshot, a moment in time. It's, it's the perimenopause that's the hot hell for some women. Yeah. Yes. But so you're actually postmenopausal. And, you know, it's a time when so many women discover themselves again and discover new things about themselves and have, you know, newfound energy and courage. There's a feeling of, you know, why not? Why not give it a try? I mean, you know, I'm out there selling a reality show. I'm doing a one woman show at the Palladium. And why not? Which I've never done before. Yeah, good for you. And, and, you know, opportunities come along and you decide, I'm going to say yes, instead of no, I can't, or it wouldn't look right, or, you know, I'll fall on my face, or people will criticize me. There's a, a courageousness where you say, what do I have to lose? If not now, when? And so there are actually so many more opportunities ahead. I mean, women often change their lives. First of all, they often take on artistic pursuits that they never did before. Sharon Stone is painting, which is so interesting to me because it was probably now like 10 years ago. But, you know, I suddenly had this urge, like maybe I could paint, Mm -hmm. even though I've never drawn before. And I also started writing songs on Garage Band. Did you? Like I taught myself how to play Garage Band. I was writing songs and <laughs> and you know, making videos and and I had all of this creative energy. I actually still do, but it just ended up being channeled in a different way. So a lot of women pursue an artistic 
career, something that they didn't, they weren't allowed to do before. Do you think that's because they're just not afraid of failing and that, that we were so mindful of that? You know, I, I know women who've gone back to college and gotten a law degree mm. and it you know, become a lawyer. So it's really a, like a new time in, in women's lives if one can embrace it. Um, you t- you've said before that you felt way more creative um, post-menopause. And I think that's really fascinating um, that I think certainly for, for me and my friends, we're kind of in that perimenopause stage where you just want to emerge with your sanity. You don't think about the fact that you actually might be more than anything at the end of this. You're just hoping to get to the end of it. Um, and the fact that you found that you've grown creatively, I was fascinated to read that. Yes. And I also, I, I have seen, you know, a lot of other women who've, who are writers. Uh, and when I read their work now, and they're all like 60, mid 60s, I'm really just astounded by the mastery of their work. And it's, you know, it's, it's really a sort of like a culmination of all of these years that you put into something. So I would say that there's a mastery of life when you're postmenopausal. It just makes you feel a little bit easier. That's nice to hear. That's nice to hear. Um, How does dating differ uh, in your 50s and 60s? Well, dating differs for everybody now, um, you know, really no matter what age you are. And I talk to women in their 20s, 30s, 40s. Um, and, you know, I feel like in a way, it's a little bit, it's not so heartbreaking for me because, yes, I'm on some dating apps. You know, people are like, what are you looking for? I'm like, I I don't really know. I'm really just looking for a connection. And it feels like that connection that one could have when one was young seems harder to find. Mm. But I don't know that that really has anything to do with age. I think it has much more to do with the times that we live in. And the reality is I know so many women who are my age who meet somebody and they fall in love and they're happier than they've ever been before. And, you know, they, like the new thing is the 70 something wedding. Is it? Um, is it yes. Really? Yes. Wow. It's 70 you know, something. I mean, look at the golden bachelor. Um, but it's, people are very, very distracted. And, and I think that it's, you know, dating is, it's really hard for the 20 somethings and, and the 30 somethings. I mean, they, I mean, I, listen, I go on some of these dating apps and I see all of these like super hot guys in their 20s and 30s. And I just think like, oh, wow, you know, gosh, if I was 30, I would just be like, you know, let's meet up with all of these guys, you know, wow. Can't wait to get to know you a little bit. Um, But 
it doesn't really seem to work out so well for for the young women. Do you not think there's just too much choice? It's like delivery. They just think they can dial it in, eat, and then just, you know, on to the next one. There, there are a lot of distractions, and it seems like it's very hard to make. Yeah, I mean, it, it's hard to get any momentum. Yeah. And that, that seems to be the big problem. You know, yes, what happens to a lot of women seems to be that they go on all of these different dates or meetups. They think it's going really well. They talk to somebody. You know, talking is like texting with them. It's like, okay, that's not really talking to them, but <laughs> fine. Um, and they think that something's going to happen. And then the guy disappears. Yeah. There's a lot of ghosting. Yeah, a lot of ghosting. And, you know, I, it's like, I find myself doing kind of the same Dude. thing. <laughs> like, like, oh, I, I do. It's like, uh, you know, you look at somebody, you look at their profile, maybe you, you see them once and then you just sort of think like, ah, why bother? Yeah, that's what I mean. It's like it's like looking at a delivery menu. That's the problem. There's a lot of, you know, why bother? And also the reality is people don't need to be coupled mm-hmm. in the way that they used to. It's very acceptable to be single. It's very acceptable to live on your own. And it's, you know, feasible. There didn't used to be any soup for one. Now there is. Mm. So you don't have to be with somebody in order to survive. I mean, you, you just don't. Do you not think that that's a hangover of how you wrote uh, Carrie in her thirties, because she didn't need that either. It was a nice to have, not a must have. And do you think that that's something that that generation has carried into their fifties and sixties? I, I think the the interesting thing about this, Kate, is to actually look at what's happening. And you know, there's a a, a lot of um, you know, demeaning, you know. There's a lot of sexism in heterosexual relationships. You know, the woman is often demeaned. She's often disrespected. So you have women saying, you know what? I don't want to be disrespected. I want my choices to be respected. I don't always want to have to watch the TV program that this guy wants to watch because he's paying our rent. Mm -hmm. And when women don't need to do that, guess what? They don't do it. Yeah. It's really interesting. In Saudi Arabia recently, they've, they've made it legal to divorce. And um, they've also made it acceptable uh, that people can access Netflix there now, for example. And here's two interesting stats. The divorce rate stands at 52% since its introduction. I think that's quite staggering. And the number one most watched show on Netflix when it was first introduced was Sex Education. <laughs> because they can. Because yes. they can divorce. Because they can watch content about conversations around sex and and that be okay. Because they can. I mean, yeah. It's, it's really interesting. And I think you're right as well. I think that because women have financial, the ability to be financially independent in a way that maybe our mother's generations and certainly our grandmother's generations never did, it affords us choice and we're exercising our choice. 
Yes, exactly. And, you know, I think we really romanticize a heterosexual relationship. And I think we need to remember that, you know, in the 50s when, oh, many women were together, there was a lot of abuse. You know, at one time, a man could legally kill his wife. And we know in other countries that that is still true. And we know the kind of sexism that exists. And, you know, so when you see single women, what you're really seeing are women who have high standards Mm -hmm. and, you know, don't want to tolerate the relationships that they once would have had to tolerate. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of women don't want to be cheated on. You know, they don't want to live in that kind of environment. And, you know, they don't want to be abused and they don't want to be verbally put down. So these, and these are things that happen all the time in heterosexual relationships with regularity. Now, it could be that 50% of the men out there are worth being married to. They're better guys. You know, yeah. and 50% maybe aren't. Oh, they're just not compatible, but at least they have a choice. They don't, you know, imagine marrying as as young as some some cultures do. Certainly, you know, um, in your early 20s, even your late teens and then having to live with that choice for the rest of your life both of you by the way not just the the female um you know that's a lot to live by ryan reynolds here from Mint mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation we thought we'd bring our prices down so to help us we brought in a reverse auctioneer which is apparently a thing Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, 
if you don't mind, I'd love to move on to our next question. It's around really important conversations. I wondered if we could revisit one of your most significant conversations and try to find comparably important ones that have subsequently taken place. Um, And this conversation sits in an article I found from the New York Times uh, published back in 2018. And you were interviewed alongside all of the major players in your life from the time that Sex and the City came to the page to mark its 20th anniversary. And um, you were dating or had been dating uh, at that time at the the concept of the column, um, your own Mr. Big, Ron Galotti, uh, who was the publisher of Vogue. And during the year that you dated, you were a superpower couple, right, you know. New York City, high-flying society. Um, And you're having dinner at the Bowery Bar, which was kind of the place to be seen. It was an old gas station that had been turned into like a bar, hangout, restaurant. And you were with um, Morgan Etrigan. Is that if I pronounced his name correctly? Yes, my publisher. Yeah, and Judy Hottenson. And um, Morgan starts this conversation. He says, how the book happened is we're sitting at a table and I says, Candice... These columns are very clever. Are you going to write enough of them to make a book? And she said, well, I will if you give me a contract. And then Judy says, Candice was her usual irreverent self. She never minced her words, never shied from asking for what she wanted. And all of a sudden, Morgan turned to me and said, Judy, should I make Candice an offer? And I said, yeah, fantastic. He jumps back in again. We slid down to the end of the table and negotiated the contract right there. Ron negotiated for Candice at the table. I said a number. He said a higher number. We settled in between And I did the deal. A really significant conversation that went on to change your life, Candice. What do you remember about being at that table? And what other really important conversations have you been a party to since? That's kind of a hard question. Yeah. Um, I I mean, first of all, that was... New York was such a fun city then. And, you know, I was writing... Sex in the City, the column, it was really huge. I think I'd written, you know, only maybe five or six columns when we had that conversation. But it sparked really quickly, right? It, it, people started talking about it. Had it been today, we'd have been sharing it. It had gone viral. But it was that word of mouth on the streets. Oh, you've got to pick up the Observer because there's this, you know, Candace Bushnell's, Bushnell's got this new column. There was a buzz. Yes. And, and people faxed it to their friends in L.A. <laughs> I mean, that was actually how it ended up, um, you know, coming to the attention of Hollywood. Oh, gosh, you know, I, I remember that night pretty clearly, uh, although maybe not clearly enough. Um, and it was, you know, very exciting. I don't really remember... Ron and Morgan sliding to the end of the table and doing the deal. Maybe that did happen. I think it was, you know, much sort of quicker than that. You know, Morgan threw out a number and Ron maybe threw out a number and they did settle. You know, I don't want to say what the amount was. Uh, You know, it felt like a lot of money back then. Yeah. And... It did happen pretty quickly. Yes. So I remember that. And then another, I remember another significant conversation that I had with Darren Starr was I was writing a story about Darren Starr for Vogue. 
And Gangstar was a big TV. Yes, he's like a, a showrunner. Yes, he's a showrunner. He was a showrunner for Melrose Place, nine hundred two one zero, and he was doing a, a show for CBS that ended up being very short lived. And I was doing a story on him for Vogue, which was how we met. And we were having lunch downtown at one of these swanky downtown fish places and Bobby Flay restaurant. And, and I said, I just sold my column sex in the city to be a book. And he said, Oh, I want to option it for a TV show. So that was a very significant conversation. Yeah. Well, one informed the other, right? There's that sense of FOMO as well, but that, like the moment he hears that somebody wants to turn it into a book, he, he wants in on that because it, it smells like something he should be a part of. Success. Yes. And, and you know, that's, that's, that's the way things work in Hollywood. Yeah. And in that summer of 1995, HBO was interested and ABC was interested. There was a woman named Jamie Tarsus, who was the first woman who was the president of a network and she was seeing a guy named Robert Morton and they and they would ride around of course in a red Mercedes <laughs> and in the Hamptons and Ron and I were renting a beach house on a, a road called Ocean Road and Jamie and and um, what's his name? Bob. Robert Morton. We're not far away. And one time I was like rollerblading down Ocean Road. You know, and they pull up in that red Mercedes, the top down, glamorous. And, and you know, they stopped and they said, listen, Jamie really wants to buy Sex in the City. ABC really, really wants to buy Sex in the City. So, and honestly, I didn't take any of it very seriously. Wow. TV wasn't big back then. It was a different place. It was a different, it was a different time. It was a different world. And I didn't even own a TV until like 1998. Did you not? Well, I mean, first of all, <laughs> when wow. the cable was really just beginning, but the reception for TV in New York was absolutely terrible. Really? Yes. I mean, it was all fuzzy. It, it actually wasn't worth watching. You know, you had to do like the aluminum foil and <laughs> some kind of antenna and jiggle it around. And oh, God, you know, because there were so many tall buildings. Yeah. So yeah. TV was absolutely terrible. Nobody watched it. Nobody stayed home at night anyway to watch TV. Why would you stay home and watch TV when you could have the most exciting life in the world out there on the streets of the city. Mm -hmm. Well, that was certainly your experience, wasn't it? So when, when Sex and the City actually started, you didn't even have a TV to keep up with it regularly. No, but it actually, it's, it's, it actually started in, well, we shot the pilot in 1997. So it was in 1998. Yeah. That's when I got the TV. Yeah, because you, because you had a show that you had to watch. Otherwise, you still wouldn't have bothered. <laughs> I might not have. But, wow! You know, they, and they were the big VH, v, VHS tapes. Yeah. Well, I remember recording Sex in the City 
um, so that I didn't miss it. So I could, if, if I was working late or away, that you couldn't miss it. it. It was, and it was unlike anything else on television. And you must have had some yes. significant conversations in order to retain that about it because it wasn't like anything else. It didn't look like any of the other shows that you've just mentioned that Darren did, for example. Um, it looked and felt entirely like its own thing. Did you have to flex your voice in the writer's room for those first two seasons? I feel like kind of not really because I, everybody who was involved, it was, it was like a second chance for everybody. You know, I, I think for, you know, Darren had had his show on CBS hadn't worked out. Mm-hmm. They canceled it after one season and he was like, he was pissed off mm-hmm. and he really wanted to do something that was different. And, and Darren and I, I felt like we had a very similar sense of humor. We were very good friends and, you know, we laughed, we hung out a lot and we laughed at a lot of the same things. And, and, you know, there's like a silly sort of charm to Darren's humor, which I felt like I have the same kind of humor. Um, and so I think because it wasn't network, that was really what kind of freed it up. And people were determined that this was going to be something that was different and that would that would be really good. And so I think that everybody felt empowered to bring their best self, right. which, you know, doesn't always happen no. in TV and in collaborations, but it did happen in this one and, you know, and it worked and, and, you know, that's really what you want. Gotcha. You the want- stars have to align, don't they? Yes. And, you know, they're just, they're just certain, you know, there's a certain magic that happens that it's a little bit like, you know, the universe decides, like all these little elements are going mm. to work. You know, I mean, one of the things that I've learned is that you can't make something work, no matter how hard you work on it. You're just a lot of unseen elements that either come together or they don't. Mm. And I think yeah, that was the most frustrating about working in a creative field. And also the number one thing is that it has to somehow connect with the audience. Mm. And that is, you know, there's, there's, it's timing. And again, it's like, just you can't force it. No, you can't. You can't. But how, how frustrating as well to find yourself a, in the situation where you've finally started to reap the success of, of, your column, the book, and now the TV series. And then you have to have to make this kind of decision that is is dictated by your success, which is stay with the show or take a million dollar uh, book contract offer up and go off and become the novelist that you've always dreamed of. I mean, rock on a hard place in many ways, I would imagine. Oh, no, I was, that was, no. I mean, it was fantastic because I still got paid money, for working on the show, which is, you know, as, you know, as a, you know, as an executive or as a producer on the show, which is, you know, that's the contract you get. Uh-huh. Um, but I don't have to, you know, I don't actually have to work on the show and I can write novels, which is, you know, what I, that was my dream. So that really wasn't 
So you weren't frustrated by that, thinking, oh, there's not no. enough hours in the day to do both? No, I was, I was, you know, thrilled. Like, uh, and, and I got that contract because I wrote another book called Four Blondes that was a mm. big bestseller. Yeah. And yeah. it was hugely successful. And, you know, I was a literary writer with a bestseller. So that there was nothing better. And I always had such a drive to write novels, to write. It was really overwhelming. And I had my own TV show before Sex and the City even came out. Did you? Called, it was one of the first reality shows. It was called Sex, Lives, and Video Clips. Mm-hmm. It was my own show on VH1. And it was two seasons. And, no, I was like, you know, I mean, I really, I, I actually, I really thought I was going to win the Pulitzer Prize for fiction. I, you know, I was super confident in my abilities. You know, of course, I then now have realized that all of those prizes are very political and, you know, they're never going to give it to a woman like me, ever. Never. No matter what I write, they're not going to give it to me. It's not going to happen. But you never needed to be given anything because you just took what you needed and made it happen. You know, it'd be nice to get a prize like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You did, I mean, do you feel like your work wasn't taken as seriously because it became so commercialized by the success of the TV show? That's, you know, yes, there's an element mm. of that, definitely. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, it, you know, and then, you know, then there was Chiclet. Yeah. So everybody got thrown into that category. Yeah, and your books, your, your Sex in the City was not chiclet at all. <laughs> no, neither were my books, but, mm-hmm. you know, it's you get thrown into that category and then you're not taken seriously in that category either. I mean, you're not taken seriously in a literary world. So, yeah. you know, there are a lot of factors that you have to craft your career very carefully in terms mm-hmm. of how you're perceived. You have to hang out with the right people. You... Uh, You have to write certain things. Uh, You know, there's a whole world out there of, of, you know, whatever your goals are of, you know, things you have to do, people you need to suck up to. And, uh, you know, I mean, I've never been able to, you know, take the literary world too seriously. I mean, I think that they're kind of pompous and full of shit. <laughs> well, that's a little bit of a problem. <laughs> well, it certainly didn't stop you selling thousands of books. What about letting go of Carrie? Because Carrie was you. You had to call yourself Carrie um, so that you spared the blushes of some of the people that you wrote about. So, as much as I'm sure, you know, jumping at the opportunity to become a novelist was super exciting. You left you left a part of you on screen with Carrie Bradshaw that lives on to this day, even in, um, you know, and just like that. Still, still people go, oh, that's Candace. You know, was it hard to let other people write you? No, no. I, you know what? I never thought about it. I, I'm not that attached like to 
something that's on the screen. I, you know, I have a very, maybe because I work in the entertainment business, I feel like I, uh, you know, I know how it works. So I, 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 I never was that attached to some kind of view of myself, you know, and the other thing is about in terms of writing fiction, I'd been writing fiction for a long time, like all through, I mean, when I first came to New York, so, you know, the chance to be a novelist wasn't like, oh, I suddenly had a chance to be a novelist. No, that was something that I'd been working towards Mm. all along. And I, I wrote for women's magazines because I was able to basically write short stories about me and my friends, um, you know, under the guise of journalism. Yeah. So, you know, I was always writing fiction. I never, ever thought I would do anything but write novels. But then I discovered, you know, when I first came to New York, like, oh, I got to eat. So... (laughs) Can we talk a little bit about some of the stuff that people will be treated to during your one woman show, true tales of sex, success and sex in the city. Yes. Um, I mean, obviously you talk about how the show came to be. Uh, you also uh, play a little game with the audience called real or not real, where you sort of start to divide out some of the facts um, that are true to you versus some of the fiction that was created for Carrie entirely uh, by the writers in the writing room. Uh, but then, of course, there are moments where your story and her story kind of blur. For example, in real life, you dated John, the actor who goes on to play Aiden. Aiden's back, by the way. Very excited about that. In real life, you dated him and then you guys stopped dating and he picked up with the woman he's now married to, Bo Derek. Right. So there's a little bit of fact versus fiction at play there that really blurs and muddies the water. Yes. I, I mean, Aiden isn't one of the questions in real or not real. Um, and when I say you dated him, by the way, I mean, you may, you dated the actor that played him, John. <laughs> yes. I mean, we went out a couple of times. So dating is like, maybe it's a little strong of a word. Okay. Um, and he's super nice. He's great. He's such a great guy. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's you know, some things that happened to Carrie happened to me, but, you know, like, I didn't fall down and become fashion roadkill, but I was in fashion shows. So, um, but I suppose some of the the differences in terms of your truth versus what we know not to be the case are the fact that things, for example, like you broke up with Ron, who was your Mister Big, when when you pretty much actually he broke up with me. Oh, did he? Uh, yes, and that's all a little bit part of the show. Okay, so. But Ron is writing his own memoir, isn't he? Ron is is, is decided because Ron Ron had a big career himself and is now kind of you know a, he again, did a, he a did Ron. and he is he is he is an interesting man. He has an interesting career, um, and he's a real larger than life character, which is why you called him Mister Big. Yes, yes, because yeah. he really was the big man on campus. And, you know, he really knew how to navigate this world of powerful, very macho men in New York City, Mm. which is definitely 
a skill and not for the faint of heart. I mean, you know, I'm, it's, you know, these powerful men are nice is not a word that one would apply to them. Come you know, I mean, they're cutthroat to each other, to women. You know, they're very sexist. It's a very sexist world. The more successful you become, you know, I, I'm actually going to stop myself because that is not true. The more sexist you become and the, the more successful you become, the more sexist the world is. But it's, you know, at the top, it's a pretty sexist world. Do you think that's still the case? Yes, it's still the case. That's depressing. Out of the 1%, people who are in the top 1% of income, 3.5% is women who made their own money. Wow. So it's a tiny, 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 neg- negligible percentage mm-hmm. of people in the 1% are are women who are able to make their own money. So that's pretty shocking. That is and, pretty you know, shocking. being in the 1% here would be being worth $11 million. Wow. So 97, 96% of women who are rich are there because they're married to a rich man or because they have family money. That's it. So, and it's very disheartening to me. Yeah, that is. That's some really depressing maths you've just, you've just given me there. Jeez. Yes. You know, and I I think that that's something that, you know, we need to keep in mind as, as women and we need to keep striving for parity because, you know, people who are the wealthiest are now in control of so much. Mm. You know, I mean, they have a big influence on politics, on, you know, on how the world works. And, you know, women's voices are really, really important. Yours especially. I mean. Thank God for Cheryl Sandberg. Yeah. Who, you know, she's in that three and a half percent. And she really speaks out for women. As do you. I mean, don't underestimate the power of your voice and the voices you've created um, and the shift that you've engendered, which is really important. It's really important. I feel it. I don't know if you can feel it as 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 much from the inside out, because if you're the creator of it, how would you? But you seriously changed the way women like me were viewed, written, regarded, celebrated, acknowledged. Well, That's massive. You know, I mean, that has always been my goal, really, ever since I was eight years old. And, and, you know, I was always hyper aware of sexism. And I remember just like railing at my father about, you know, how the world was, how school worked, how boys were allowed to get away with all kinds of things and girls weren't, and it wasn't there. And my father said, you have a great message, but he said, you've got to figure out a way to deliver it better. (laughs) I just, you know, I just yell and it's, it, it doesn't help. Or well, maybe, maybe you managed to find a way to deliver it better. I think arguably your book sales would say so. Um, how do you feel when you see, for example, when we talk about real or not real, 
Um, a big part of the, the narrative for Carrie Bradshaw was her relationship with Big. And actually for you in your, your own life, you and Ron were only together for a year, pretty much. It's interesting, isn't it, that he becomes such a massive part of Carrie's narrative and yet seemingly was an important but very momentary um, figure in your life. Yes. That's TV. Yeah. You know, I always say TV has its own logic. And, you know, look at the enduring... I mean, look at how long Pride and Prejudice has endured. Mm. For a hundred years? I think it finds... Mr. Darcy? I know, but we we swallow it more when it's in a when it's in a bodice I think when it's Carrie bloody Bradshaw and she's still hankering for Mr. Right you think come on you're 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 better than this how did you feel it was dealt with in um and just like that when you see Big Die in the first episode um I thought that was quite bold and and ballsy what was your take on it it had to happen I mean it's a little bit you know it's a little bit tv writing 101 you know, the first thing is like, if we're going to bring this back, Carrie Bradshaw has to have something to struggle against. She's got to have a new life. She's got to have new challenges. Well, if she has this great, happy relationship, where does that take her as a character? Mm. There's really no place for her to go. So he has to die. I mean, he could have maybe cheated on her and it would have ended that way, but and, you know, I wasn't in the writer's room, so I, I can't speak for them. But, you know, if they'd done that, then they really would have sullied that relationship. You know, that, in, you know, viewers invested so much mm-hmm. in that relationship. And, you know, really, it's brilliant to get viewers to invest in this in this fictional relationship. And, I mean, killing him off, was is probably better than he's out of her life because he cheated and he turns out to be a scumbag, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, those are the kinds of decisions I imagine they would have wrestled with. And, you know, they settled on, on this solution. And, I, I mean, I thought it was quite bold, too. Yeah, I didn't see it coming, that's everybody, for sure. But it got everybody talking. Yeah, it did. So good on them. Good on them. It got everybody, everyone had an opinion about it. They shouldn't have done it. Ah. Yeah, no, we were. There was there was a lot of WhatsApping that night. There were lots of WhatsApp groups pinging. Yes. What about real or not real when it comes to somebody else's take on a story that's so well told now? What about when Ron publishes his memoirs, which he keeps threatening to do? Um, that'll be interesting, won't it, to see his take on all of this? I don't think it's going to be a big part of it. No. I, I mean, well, first of all, he's got to write those memoirs. Mm-hmm. I don't know if he's actually writing them or, you know, if he's shopping it around or, you know, I I, I don't know. He did send me like 30 pages and, you know, it's typical Ron. It's really, really about him. (laughs) Well, a memoir normally is in fairness. I mean, it's, it's his childhood it, I, you know, I mean, for him, Sex in the City is actually a small mm-hmm. part of his life as well. Uh, you know, he's much more concerned with, he knew a lot of really famous people, designers, models. 
that's what he's interested in writing about. You know, Ron and the supermodels. Well, before he dated you, he dated Janice Dickinson, yeah? Yes, he did. Yeah, that was lively. She's super nice. Yeah, but lively. <laughs> We've seen her on a lot of reality TV shows here. And she's great fun to watch, but mainly because you've got a remote control and you can switch off when you need to. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I, I see her sometimes out at events and... And, you know, she's super nice and she's super fun. So. Yeah, she's very good fun. But, you know, like I'm friends with all of the reality, all of the housewives of New York. Are you? Yes. They're my good friends. You love them. I do. Because they're all, you know, they're lively, they're interesting, they're successful, they're smart. I mean, I've known Ramona since the 1980s. So these are really like, you know, the real life Sex and the City girls. Kind of almost what they grew up to be. Kind of, yes. Yeah. So you're flying into the UK in February to take the show on the road. Um, what's your relationship with the UK? Obviously, we inhale sex in the city voraciously here. Um, is it a place that you feel the love? Uh, well, I, I love the UK. I, you know, always have. I, you know, as a kid, I mean, my family going back few hundred years is actually of English or Scottish descent. Wow. And I kind of feel a little bit like it's in my blood. Um, and when I was a kid, I read lots of books about kids in English boarding school. And <laughs> all I wanted to do was be a kid at an English boarding school. There's nothing more glamorous. I mean, it's the... It's the neat plus ultra for me, England. <laughs> now, it's like, I love the royal family. <laughs> I know a lot of English people are like, hey. but, you know, we don't have that here. So I'm, you know, I mean, everything English just seems so much more glamorous and, and you know, old world. And, uh, you know, I mean, I used to ride horses and, I love the, you know, the way it looks and the way it feels. I mean, it's just, it's just extraordinary to me. Yeah. So you've spent a lot of time here. I have, maybe not enough, you know, and I, I do have two standard poodles and they're pretty old. And I think, well, maybe if they pass away, mm. I, which is going to happen in the next yeah. couple of years. I'm like, you know, I'll go and live in England. Bring the dogs. If not now, when? Well, now one can bring them. One can bring them. But I, you know, I absolutely love the, the UK. Good. I mean, to me, it's so colorful. It's so interesting. People are very interesting to me. They're intellectual. They, they're verbally clever. There's something soulful, too. Now, you may feel very differently. Yeah, I'm thinking, gosh, who are these people that you've met? <laughs> I'm joking, I'm joking. I agree entirely, wholeheartedly. Well, I really look forward to sitting amongst uh, those and their like um, when you bring the show to London and to the UK. It's it's certainly a, an evening that I'm sure you can fill three, four times over with your tales of sex, success and the city. And thank you so much for finding time for me today. It's been genuinely my pleasure to meet somebody who I've read and watched and 
loved from a distance for so long. So thank you. Oh, thank you, Kate. This has been so much fun. If you'd like to spend an evening with Candice, and who wouldn't, at her one-woman show, True Tales of Sex, Success and Sex in the City, she's touring the UK across February, and tickets are available wherever you get your tickets. And for more conversation with other female trailblazers, we have episodes in our back catalogue with Dame Prue Dame Arlene Phillips, Dame Denise Lewis, all the dames, E.L. James, Her Royal Highness, Princess Eugenie, and Haddon Waddingham, waiting for your listening pleasure. Just search for them by name using your search bar. I'll be back on Friday with another great guest, and I'll also be popping a little something from the cellar onto your feed on Tuesday. Until then, thanks so much for your company. White Wine Question Time is a Stack production and part of the Acast Creator Network. 